Hi, everybody, and welcome to the newest podcast of the Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform, CONP. For this edition of the podcast, we sat down with Ben Inglis, an MR physicist and the manager of the magnetic resonance facilities at the Henry H. Wheeler Jr. Brain Imaging Center at UC Berkeley in California. Ben is a unique voice in the MRI community, contributing a number of tutorials about functional MRI through his popular blog, Practical FMRI, The Nuts and Bolts. He's also very active on Twitter under the handle at PracticalFMRI as an outspoken advocate for good practices in medical imaging. our voice, which is why I really wanted to talk to you. I feel like open science is a little bit of a bubble. I want to step outside of it, see how people that are not necessarily working with open science view it, and just get conversations going uh, that are not necessarily directly related to open science, but definitely contribute. Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, how's everything over there? Yeah, pretty uh, good. Pretty busy. Uh, I'm catching you up on the beard stakes. I'm just being lazy. <laughs> It's uh, midwinter. Yeah, yeah. No, things are going. Things are going pretty well. Um, busy. We've got a few new projects this year, which are uh, some some uh, ultra fast fMRI, uh, which is actually not fMRI per se, but we're using fMRI, which is kind of fun. Looking at head injury and um, cool. doing some perfusion. So ASL has been big this year, and uh, yeah, things are things are trucking on. I'm even getting back into some spectroscopy. Back to the future. Wow. How fast is ultra fast? Uh, we're doing 25 frames a second. The application requires that I can sample. So basically my Nyquist needs to be somewhere around 20 hertz. Uh, sorry, so this, my sampling rate needs to be about 20 hertz. I want to see things up to about 10 hertz and I want a little bit of buffer. So um, so that's sort of our specification to, to kick off. So it's just single slice right now, but uh, it's it's interesting. And we're sort of doing, we're, we're um, inverting the signal to noise equation. So we're basically looking at physiological effects, right? So we're treating the ongoing neural activity as if it's not there we're just ignoring it and then we're over flipping we're using a lot of inflow effects and um, we see these really interesting patterns in the ventricles because of the pressure wave and then the idea is to try to use essentially the same methods that blaise frederick has used in um, recursively tracking lags for slow waves like with arterial you know, co2 but uh, just to, to apply it to uh, blood pressure waves and so if we consider that the method should be agnostic to the TR, if you don't matter if it's 2000 or 40, uh, it, it's really a, a case of stepping through in you know, what, what correlates with what and can we make meaningful um, you know, statistical comparisons and interpret these results. So we're sort of shifting to this ultra fast look at, uh, at uh, blood dynamics, basically. It's kind of fun. Cool. Yeah. So the reason I... I thought of interviewing you is I saw a tweet and your tweet was uh, be helpful. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was well received. And uh, there was quite a lot of discussion about, you know, what being helpful means. So I guess I'll first start without even mentioning open science. What does being helpful mean to you? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there were, there were some interesting discussions from that tweet. Of course, with just two words, you can interpret it however you like. And that's probably what most people did. It's obviously reflective. You, you reflect on your own circumstances and that's how you respond, right? Um, but then after you asked me to do the interview, I actually did ponder this. The, the idea of open science a bit more and how it relates to being helpful. And I thought, well, why, you know, 
stick off. I don't do open science. You know, I'm not an open science seller. Right? That's that's data sharing and you know code, you know GitHub's and stuff, right? And I thought, well, hang on a minute. No, I mean in a broad case, my blog is open science because if I find something that I think is useful to somebody, I just simply tell the world about it. I write it sometimes for my own benefit to clarify my thoughts. And sometimes it's for the local benefit. You know, I've got 15, 20 people who might need to know this in my local area, my, my local users. But it takes the exact same amount of time for me to write and distribute that to 15 people locally as everybody on the planet. So, um, and you've been blogging for how long? Since 2010. Yeah, 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 I saw you have seven posts in 2010, I noticed. Yeah, and that's right. And, and I, came, I came in with a big backlog. You'll see there's a big bolus. So the original idea was it was going to be a textbook. And so I decided uh, this was, I'd, I'd written a fic fiction, I'd written a novel in 2009. So then I was like, okay, I need a new project. And so Can 20, we find the novel somewhere? Uh, maybe, but I'll keep, yeah, I'll let you know <laughs> off, offline. It is available on Bubble Chat. <laughs> Uh, it's called Bubble Chamber. It's on. Cool. It's on. It's, it's on Amazon. Um, but anyway, it is under a nom de plume because I didn't want to insult anybody. So, um, so 2010. So I sort of went into 2010, casting about for a new project, and decided you know, I did. I, I was. Te I'd been teaching by uh, fMRI physics for a decade at that point, and so I figured I'd sort of got. I'd refined it to the point where I think I knew what works for uh, graduate level uh, psychologists who don't have chemistry background, physics background. And so that was the original idea was to sort of get this material out in a form that was useful um, to them immediately while I took the multiple years to get the textbook ready. I didn't want people to have to wait while I got the chapters out, right? So then of course, you know, you start getting the feedback and you realize that actually being online, a blog or a web-based medium is the perfect vehicle for an fMRI or MRI is neuroimaging, it's pictures, videos, uh, it's color. So, and, and so that um, ability to control the content and the, and the speed of the content was, um, it sort of took it over a life of its own. And so I shelved uh, the, the book idea completely. I'll never do that. But the motivation from the blog, the, the help pages or the help blogs that um, weren't necessarily things that you would find in a starter, a primer textbook. Uh, let's say like I just post I just did on using a 12 channel coil for multiband. That, uh, that philosophy, that being helpful philosophy came out of my graduate school experience I got very fortunate I was actually a, I, uh, the only other place I considered to go to graduate school was Stanford they probably wouldn't have taken me but this is where Mikovsky was you know, had his empire uh, so this is the um, mid late 80s but yeah, so I got we very, could have been colleagues huh? Yeah, we could have been colleagues but I got very lucky in that um, my college in London they hired Steve Williams uh, in my final year as an undergrad they hired Steve Williams uh, right out of Cambridge he was Laurie Hall's first PhD student at Cambridge just before Peter Jazard and, and all those other guys. So there was a whole big crew of them that I knew. Uh, and so Steve dropped into my college and was then responsible for setting up an intercollegiate research service for University of London wide. And bear in mind that this was the only, it was a 4.7T Cisco system, variant Cisco system. And it was uh, Steve and me. Well, Steve's only a few years older than me and he had a girlfriend in Switzerland at the time and he had to travel and go to meetings and stuff. And so who was in charge when he was away? Me. So I got to work with all these extraordinary people, often in areas that I knew nothing about. And I just had to sort of make the best of it. So I, I got used to plugging holes or trying to do the best I could. Um, and sometimes it would be reactive and sometimes proactive. And most of the time I was out of my depth, but, but the, 
the education that I got was was to recognize that if you if you see a problem and you can you can be helpful and, and move something forward, then people will call you back. They'll offer you jobs. Um, it's a pretty easy way to find a career path. So I sort of I perpetuated that model uh, without really consciously thinking about it until probably the early two thousands. It was just a, it was just what I did. Uh, but when I look back now, I can see this common thread through my career to the point where when I was at University of Florida, before I came to Berkeley, um, I put in the 11.70 wide bore, 40 centimeter. I'd never put in a magnet system before. I knew roughly what superconductivity was, but there was nobody else. So I just got into it. And um, that, again, that mentality of sort of just simply trying to plug a hole, doing your best was, was very useful to me. It gave me exposure to, to problems that I wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. And I learned skills that um, I wouldn't have learned otherwise. It does mean that I'm a little bit you know, shallow. I've got a lot of breadth, maybe not so much depth. But, um, but over the years, those skills have been translatable. And um, without sort of realizing it, I had learned how to be, become a project manager, how to prioritize, yeah. things like that. And so that really was sort of what I've been sort of trying to capture and push out in the, the blog and in tweets and other things. Um, we have another local endeavor called the, C- the Siemens Neuro User Group. It's the NorCal Snug Siemens Neuro User Group. And the idea is that everybody in the Bay Area who has Siemens equipment, we should be talking to each other because we're all facing fundamentally the same problems, whether it's a Prisma or a Trio or whatever. The applications differ. Sometimes the hardware differs, but it only differs in the second or third degree. It's not, uh, we're not doing X-ray and and MRI. So again, those those models have have been very, very helpful. they, they, you pay it forward, but you get it back uh, because people will, will educate me and, and, and so on. So that's sort of the, been my, my, my be helpful model. So going, going back to your uh, blog posts, and there, there's more than 100 on there. Okay, thanks for counting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are out there. Anybody can read them. But, you know, they're, they're not, at least at the moment, recognized as contributions that would lead to promotion, to grants. Is this something that, bothers you? Do you think that this kind of content is something that should be more appreciated by promotion committees? And would that change your mind about doing things slightly different? So um, it doesn't bother me personally, but then I'm very much closer to retirement than graduation, right? And so I don't have to worry about the consequences. Um, I also, I think, I, I, one of the reasons why I, I like the way I blog is because I have control. And um, there's a reason why I don't have ads on there and I don't, I just simply refuse all apparent or real conflicts of interest because I want the flexibility. I need that freedom. I wouldn't necessarily want to feel like there was somebody scrutinizing something for other reasons than it's useful to them or not. Um, So sometimes I have to do things in a hurry. Sometimes they're not nearly as um, as circumspect as I might like to, to make them. Um, and I wouldn't want to think, oh my goodness, I can get, get you know, this, this may not be as good as it could be. Somebody may be disappointed in me because uh, you know, I didn't do something. So I think that that's, there is a danger in making it a formal part of uh, an evaluation process. The other thing is that there, there's always feedback mechanisms. So although you may not necessarily get the direct credit, there are very good ways to get indirect credit for things and I think that for me personally that is enough Um, but again it as I figured out from the conversations after that 
tweet. It really very much depends on who you work with, what your uh, career position is, how far along you are in your career path and, and how many because controlling on, people you work with. On that discussion, basically, that was, you know, the people that are very helpful might actually get screwed in the long run because they don't get properly acknowledged. Like that yeah. was really the, you know, the pushback on the be helpful uh, message. And I guess it's a fair message. It is, but I mean, I personally don't know anybody who's been screwed over by being too helpful. Whereas I can, and I'm not going to mention, I'll try not to mention anybody else's names, but I am aware of, because I'm guilty of it myself, I am aware of withholding information from people who are unhelpful. So the corollary to that can be very costly. And most people will not know about it because it's a passive aggressive move. But people who, are, who insist on ownership and control and being paid up front, whether that's through a paper or whatever, those people don't get my calls. They don't get uh, helped. Uh, I don't go above and beyond for them. So um, yeah, there's, it, there's definitely a, a two-way street but um, I have yet to come across anybody who has been, there might be some, you know, one or two examples, but as a matter of philosophy, all of the people I know who have been open and helpful have ended up being very successful, not, not the opposite. Fair enough. And I, I really like that uh, message as a kind of catchphrase for the podcast. Actually, I switched to phone just to make oh. sure that the connection is uh, clear. Yeah. So I think there won't be any pauses now. So you and I met because uh, we had been interacting on Twitter with the Highlights Initiative for MRM, for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine. And then I was visiting the Bay Area and uh, we agreed that I'll just come and visit you and you know, chat in person. And then you introduced me to JV Pauline. In the end, JV ended up coming here in Montreal and <laughs> him and I are now working together on getting a publishing platform off the ground. Yeah. So uh, you, you have been the seed for many initiatives that are related to publishing. My contact with uh, JB being one of them. The other actually suggesting we do a special issue on microstructure because you were following us tweeting from a conference about microstructure that happened in Montreal. Talk to me about publishing. Uh, how, how do you view the world right now? What do you think could make publishing better in the future? Oh, golly. Uh, I'm not sure. I have good answers for you. Um, so I don't have to write papers myself very often. I do it really for my own benefit, right? Because I like to feel like I've completed a project. Um, I don't need it for, for career reasons. Um, but I have had some re- recent interactions. I've published a few papers recently, and they've all been fairly good experiences. Um, so I have to say that I, I'm actually somewhat sanguine about the the state of at least neuroimaging journals um, i think the reviews review process still works reasonably well and it's been reasonably timely i can also I, here i will make, name some names uh it came across um, uh recently I, I i found out that journal cerebral blood flow and metabolism is one of the journals that holds their publications for over a year so you could have a, a paper accepted in october of 2018 and it may not come out until an early 2020 publication date even though it's available online and they're doing this to game the impact factor they, because yep. they only have two many many, many publishers journals. do that that's right so that needs to change because that's just complete and utter bs um i don't think many of the neuroimaging journals i'm a, uh, aware of are playing those games even though uh, neuroimage is in elsevier i've i've had some interactions uh, with peter when he was peter Bandettini when he was the editor um and with um uh, golly, I'm blanking on his name, the Australian guy. Who I, um, Bre- uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Breakspear. 
Um, and I think they've, they've run a really good ship. So in spite of the Elsevier issues, I think that the journal is in good hands and is being well run. So I think that our traditional journals are, are reasonably in good shape. Um, I don't know about other sort of uh, um, initiatives, sort of more um, something that would be between a free-flowing blog and a traditional paper. I have done a couple of um, publications through the Winnower before it got bought and sort of became a piece yeah, of cool. some other platform. Yeah, and it was really just as a, an exercise, um, just sort of testing to see if I could get DOIs on things because you, some, sometimes it's nice to have that permanence on a blog. Um, so that was a good, a good test. But yeah, I think uh, anything that can accelerate the discourse is probably good. I think it's really troubling given that we're supposedly all online and super rapid now, that our total turnaround for the average publication before the public sees it is slower than it was 60 years ago. That's just weird. When people were using typewriters and, and didn't have Xerox machines and they were sending it out hard copy. Um, so, so this is bizarre to me. So um, it's fine for some results to spend a year or two languishing in review and whatever, but some of this stuff is pretty much mission critical. And um, I think that we do need to look at the, the time aspect. Um, I think much more than the impact factor per se or any of these other scoring things. All of these scoring things get gamed anyway. They become the, um, they become a raison d'etre, which is always dangerous. There, there's a law that says the moment something becomes a metric, that's when it gets recognized as a metric, it stops being useful as a metric. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so yeah, we have to be careful of that. But um, I think in general, uh, faster turnaround is good. I like the, um, the the modern, and this has happened really relatively recently. Two years ago, if you had uploaded a, a paper to the bioarchive, people would look looked at you sideways. Nowadays, they look at you sideways. Norm, yeah. Don't, and that's great. That's a really quick quick shift. Yeah. So. So definitely that adds transparency to the process. And there's another aspect of transparency that, again, has been very controversial, at least on social media at the moment, uh, which is transparency in the peer review process. Is there such a thing as too much transparency? And uh, I guess you're aware about the discussions that were happening <laughs> yeah. with regard to uh, Nico Krieges-Corte and Brad Love. And uh, it, it really made me think hard about is too much transparency a bad thing? Would you advocate that reviews be public? Would you advocate that reviews be signed? Have, I think that reviews themselves, the actual reviews, could be useful. They could be a, they're a part of the process. And there could be some very useful insights in the reviews that don't find their way into the final paper. Right? And so that would be good for, for the reader to have. So uh, I think that's a, potentially a, a useful development. It's not essential, but it would be potentially useful in some circumstances. As far as anonymous or signed reviews go, I, I'm a strong proponent of anonymity. Um, I've, and again, I'm not going to name names, but um, I can, in very, very short order, I can give you a short list, a long list of people who, are, who uh, I would not trust to not be vindictive if they were given a bad review or something that they perceived to be a bad review. Um, and I don't work with that many people. And so, you know, if I know that many people, goodness knows how that would talk for anonymity. You know, I wanted to talk to somebody who has a lot of experience being helpful, sharing uh, content with the world, uh, but never really considering himself an open science advocate, even though I would say that you have been and you have been an inspiration to many people for a long time. Is there 
anything that you would be curious about or anything that I haven't asked you that uh, you think would be appropriate for uh, the open science audience? No, I think you've probably made the best point, which is that open science is not a, um, a compartment. It's a, it's a process. It's a, it's a way of approaching life. You can't, you, you can't label it. It's not blue or round. And so um, it's more like pornography. You know it when you see it. <laughs> so, yeah. And so it's all, in the, it's all in your perception. And I think that that's a really important point because I think there are a lot of things that could be construed as open science that are not and we just we 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 have siloed data sharing and um and, and code sharing as the open science model but i think that a much broader perspective could be helpful thank you ben thank you